Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. A lot of important and, dare we say, intriguing news from Israel this past week. So what we're going to do in this episode is go around the horn and touch on all of them. Rising settler violence in the West Bank, natural gas to Gaza, Yair Lapid meeting with senior Palestinian officials, a remarkable interview by former IDF Chief of Staff Gadi Eisenkot, as well as, of course, Netanyahu's potential plea deal. To help us out, we have back on with us Israel Policy Forum's own policy director, Michael Kulplo, coming to us from Washington, and Shira Efron, who is a policy advisor at IPF and a senior fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies here in Israel. There's never a dull moment or week in Israel. Let's get into it. Michael, Shira, hello and welcome back. Hi, Neri. Thank you. Hi, Neri. Thanks. So a lot to get through this episode, uh, but I wanted to start here with arguably the, the most important and the most upsetting story of the past week, the continued rise in settler violence in the West Bank. Uh, we saw settler gangs, there's no other way for it to put it, uh, in Burin, which is in the northern West Bank, uh, over the weekend on Friday, they came down and attacked uh, Palestinians and left-wing Israeli activists that were there to protect and monitor the Palestinians. They attacked them with bats, uh, threw stones, uh, torched a car. So that was on Friday. And then last night, Monday night, we're recording this on Tuesday, but on Monday night, a uh, settler convoy went through uh, the village of Hawara, outside of Nablus, uh, a main artery uh, in the northern West Bank for both Palestinians and Israelis, and threw rocks from their cars at various storefronts. They hit a Palestinian child. Uh, We should mention that Israel Policy Forum uh, today, Tuesday, issued a very strong letter, uh, obviously denouncing this phenomenon, uh, calling it an affront to Israel's rule of law, to Israeli democracy, to Jewish values. Uh, And that's all for the good. And we should also say that Last night, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid also denounced it on Twitter, as did Defense Minister Benny Gantz, uh, who called it a very serious incident, uh, pledged to act hard against those responsible, and that anyone who throws stones and torches vehicles uh, is a terrorist, and that's how we should treat him. So the first question, we'll start with Michael. Uh, Do you think there's any prospect that the Israeli government will actually address this really unsettling phenomenon head-on? I think that there's certainly a prospect that the Israeli government will address it head-on. I I think the question really is how far it will go. Obviously, we've seen the denouncements from Benny Gantz and and Yair Lapid and others, although uh, so far not from from, uh, Prime Minister Bennett. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we saw, you know, all of a sudden... Um, a demolition order posted for Givat Ronen, the illegal outpost where the uh, the gang came from on Friday, or uh, where the gang is presumed to have come from on Friday that attacked uh, that attacked Palestinians and, and Israeli activists. So we see it so far, you know, some some steps, but I think part of the problem is that every time this happens. Many folks inside of Israel, from politicians to the Yesha Council to ordinary Israelis, tend to describe it as an isolated incident or 
confined only to a few hundred troubled teens. Mm -hmm. And even if that's true, even if it's the case, it doesn't make it any less of a problem. And I think that it, it in some ways it makes it easier to, to not look at it as a crisis, to not look at it as something that's endemic to Israel's presence in the West Bank. And it makes it easier to not really deal with it once it falls out of the news cycle. Right. Uh, and Shira, you and I both uh, live in Israel or based in Israel. Uh, there's a very uh, a heterogeneous coalition government in power right now. And some are obviously like you know Prime Minister Bennett and others, uh, pro-settlers. Uh, they don't make any, any qualms about that. Uh, politically, do you think that there's room for those for those politicians to actually stand up and and actually denounce it a and then b allow this government to to take real action politically you know i i i don't know if, if you agree but i think um it's going to be very difficult for this government to take um significant actions politically uh, because of the composition, because of who the prime minister is, because of the others who have they, who he has in his in his coalition, uh, members from the right, because you know Benjamin Netanyahu, who we haven't mentioned five minutes in, but um, could be departing the political stage, which might shake up things again. And you have to, you know, a lot of people that are contenders want to take you know take over the could again so you need to be to think about the political base even more uh, than you did maybe a couple of weeks ago and it's pretty astonishing i find because you know we hear those um statements on one hand and we there were uh three uh two-star generals uh, Gadi Shamni, friends of ipf writing uh you know a letter and and articles denouncing settler violence and Gadi eisenkot former chief of staff uh, spoke about the fact that israel just has a as a rule of law problem, right? Governance problem. And what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, <laughs> you find people that if you dare to say uh, settler violence, that they, they say that you are uh, discriminating against them, against the whole uh, uh, public, that um, they are the true Zionists, just uh, uh, a few wild, you know, teens, uh, this is not a big phenomenon. It's not organized. So uh, there's, there's, there are a lot of attempts to uh, launder this uh, this phenomenon. And I think um, we see the outcome of what happens when you don't act. Right. Right. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, it's a growing phenomenon, as Israel Policy Forum has, has pointed out uh, over the past year. Uh, these growing incidents more and more. Uh, it's a question to my mind whether it's related to the change over in government that uh, these these hilltop youth, as they're called, which is a misnomer, essentially gangs of criminals, uh, often young but not always, uh, who who attack Palestinians uh, systematically, and that it wouldn't be a shock to me at least if these were. If they were taking inspiration, let's say, from the overall politics uh, in the country at the moment, uh, what they view as this, you know, dangerous left-wing government that's uh, that's being, you know, headed by, uh, you know, a former settler leader like Naftali Bennett. Um, and you're both right, by the way, that they, when when these incidents happen, uh, settler leaders and right-wing politicians just try to kind of whitewash it as simply, you know, oh, it's a it's a few dozen. Uh, delinquent teens and or 
oh, these are just uh, Palestinian or left-wing Israeli activist provocations on the ground. So that's usually the refrain. Um, but remains to be seen whether Benny Gantz and this government specifically actually take action. Uh, the proof, I think, will will be in the pudding. Right. And especially when you hear Likud members saying, right, like there's discrimination against them. If you count the number of times that the Arabs, they don't call them Palestinians, right? So the Arabs attack Jews. It's uh, the 50 times uh, more. Why are you pointing at fingers at uh, the, 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 the best and the finest? So it's really, they're going against something uh, on the other side. And essentially, you know, some members of the coalition, ideologically, they are um, aligned with this camp. So it's very difficult uh, for them to take a, a strong strong st- uh, stance. But um, I got to tell you, I mean, when you have a rule of law problem, and Israel has one, obviously, in the West Bank with the settlers, and it has some, have you seen, we've seen uh, increase in cases of uh, violence in the South, Um not the Bedouin community, but not not all Bedouins, of of course. Um, it, this is this is a problem for how the ability of organized this, crime. Yeah, so this country. I mean, this is this is just uh, another. You know, this is a political issue, but it's but it's really uh, it casts doubts on the bigger governance uh, structures and and rule of law. And and I'll just add to you know build into the point that both of you have made about the way politics plays into this. We're living in a world where you have Itamar Ben-Gvir in the Knesset, and depending on who the next Likud leader is, which I know we'll <laughs> we'll get to we'll get to later in the podcast, depending on who the next Likud leader leader is, polling has Itamar Ben-Gvir's party, religious Zionism, as the third largest party in the Knesset. So you know when you when you have neo-fascist Kahanists who are in the Knesset, have no danger of falling below the threshold, and whose power seems only set to increase with subsequent elections, it's not all that surprising that the most lawless type of people in the West Bank look at that as almost a green light to to do what they want. Yeah. Uh, And as somebody else pointed out uh, in recent days, uh, sure, you can try to dismiss this phenomenon is just uh, uh, delinquent kids uh, that that aren't part of the the mainstream, but they're coming down from outposts that were put there by someone. They're hooked up to electricity. They have caravans. They have water. So uh, the entire infrastructure of of this project supports it, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly. Right, and and one of the things that you often hear people say, including me, by the way. Um, you know, people talk all the time about the overwhelming majority of settlers in the West Bank are law-abiding, and that's true in some sense. But you know, there are also approximately twenty thousand Israelis living in illegal outposts, and even if of those twenty thousand, nineteen thousand five hundred of them never commit any violence, to describe them as law-abiding when they're living in outposts that are illegal, established illegally under Israeli law, um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes this narrative a bit more complicated. Yeah, the double standard hypocrisy of it all, uh, aside from the actual damage on the ground, is is astonishing. Um, so yeah, it remains to be seen whether this Israeli government uh, actually begins to take it seriously. Uh, moving on from the West Bank to the Gaza Strip, uh, in recent days, we saw reports 
uh, kind of flew under the radar, but quite interesting, that Qatar officially announced that it plans to fund the building of a natural gas pipeline from Israel's offshore gas fields to Gaza, uh, and primarily to Gaza's uh, power plant to provide electricity to to the Gaza Strip. Uh, now, Shira, I know you deal uh, a lot with Gaza and the the economics of Gaza. Uh, why, if this comes to fruition, is it such a big deal for for Gaza? So, um, no, that's a great question. It's 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 an important development, but not as important as I I would have liked it to be. So maybe maybe just a word of what this gas for Gaza is, because it's a big it's a big project. Um, it's uh, involve it involves several players, you know, Israel, the PA, Hamas, the European Union, and Qatar, which you mentioned. And the idea is that um, you would the the project would supply uh, reliable. Uh, in a reliable way and cost-effective cost um, way, natural gas uh, for Gaza to support the Gaza power plant, um, which now runs runs on diesel fuel, and this would convert it to be using natural gas, which is way less polluting, could be much more reliable. You have it, right? It would come from the Leviathan um, uh, uh, gas field, which is offshore Gaza. Um, and it can, if implemented, going to your question, uh, support uh, Gaza's energy needs because it can, with future expansions, it can uh, supply up to, I think, even more than 600 megawatts and, and beyond, which is, you know, addre- would address uh, Gaza's uh, energy supplies. Gaza has uh, long uh, power cuts for over a decade now of 8 to 12 hours a day on average, and there were periods where there were more. So uh, you mm-hmm. understand that anything we talk about Gaza, whether it's humanitarian or reconstruction or development, you can't really do without having power. <laughs> so this right, this everything. is very, 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 it's, it's, it's super necessary. What happened with the Qataris, in, and I think that's interesting, it, the development started, um, uh, I think it was a month ago, um, that Qatar, the PA, Palestinian Authority, and Gaza's electrical company, they signed a deal, um, what they call, that would advance it. And they, uh, with last month, they pledged to invest $60 million in laying the pipeline, what you're mentioning. And the development we heard from three days ago is that, it was, I think it was Friday, that they, that, um, Qatar would establish an escrow account with Gaza Electricity Company, where they would put the uh, where they would put the funds of supplying the gas and generating electricity. Um, but it's details of the same thing, uh, which is great. If that uh, would have been um, accompanied with with sort of a, a more a timeline, uh, like actual details. Yeah, because. I've been hearing about gas for Gaza for years, and and I th- I, th- I think you have also, um, but there's no actual work plan that I've seen, uh, even with this news or a timeline, um, and we're not seeing any. You know, without that, we can't realistically start uh, even envisioning the future of electricity, uh, steady electricity supply in Gaza, steady power supply in Gaza, um, and. I think realistically, if you started now, like the project building it now, it would be, I think probably 2024. 
under the most mm, okay. optimistic, 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 optimistic scenario. And we can never have that scenario when it comes to Gaza. It would start working. But since it's not starting work now, uh, in the next few years, I just don't see um, the solution. Interesting. Uh, and you're right. I've The first time I heard about uh, natural gas from Israel's offshore field going to support Gaza's electricity needs, I think, was in uh, 2014. And uh, a certain Israeli official laid out maps and uh, plans. And back then, it seemed like pie in the sky. Uh, now, perhaps the political will and the understanding that this is a real need for Gaza, maybe uh, maybe we'll get uh, some things moving. Uh, Michael, what do you think about gas for Gaza given the overall context about Israel and, and Hamas, obviously indirectly negotiating over, uh, if not a long-term ceasefire, then a short-term ceasefire and, and what they call here an arrangement uh, between Israel and Hamas uh, for Gaza. You know, obviously the electricity problem needs to be solved. Having the, the sole plant in Gaza run on diesel um, is not a long-term viable solution, but uh, I'm I'm with Shira in terms of having all sorts of doubts about whether it's possible. Not least because of uh, of what you just mentioned, the notion that um, this agreement was hashed out between uh, the countries and and Israel and and the Palestinian Authority when the Palestinian Authority, you know, and Hamas have to agree uh, and coordinate in some fashion, you know, seems seems far fetched uh, to to start. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, it's funny, Neri, when you talk about first hearing about this in 2014, you know, it's not just uh, gas for Gaza. You also had uh, this week the story about the U.S. Uh, or reporting, at least, that the U.S. has told the Israelis, Greeks and Cypriots that uh, it is not going to support a pipeline um, connecting, connecting those three. And then you had the Turks jumping in and trying to resurrect this idea of an Israel-Turkey pipeline, which was also being spoken about uh, back in 2014. So, uh, you know, it's funny It's funny how these these, these arrangements um, keep on getting upended and, you know, things that seemed far-fetched 10 years ago now maybe uh, seem seem on the radar and things that were on the radar are now off the radar. Um, I don't know how any of this, how any of this gets resolved, um, you know, but suffice to say, I will, I will be very surprised if we see Israeli gas going through a pipeline to supply a Hamas-run Gaza Strip anytime in the near future. Okay. Uh, I think that's probably a realistic assessment of this latest news, uh, maybe a bit pessimistic too. Uh, but, uh, but I will say maybe in that sure. context that I think it is interesting, just that it's always Qatar. <laughs> you know, It brings us back to, remember, uh, May 2021, this... Spring, the last spring, um, you probably heard it. The Israeli government says, "Mashaya ulo mashiye." What was the won't 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 continue as it was when we won't let uh, uh, Qatar, uh, who supports you know country, an actor that supports the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, uh, continue to be the main uh, influencer in Gaza. We will get other. Uh, regional countries who are more aligned with Israel strategically, like the Emirates and Bahrain will bring them in to invest in Gaza. And you know what? It's still because the fact is that, and I don't want to say anything normative about Qatar, but the fact is that Qatar is the only player that's willing to commit 
uh, commit not just for one-time projects, also to pay bills in perpetuity, which they have been done, mm-hmm. they've been doing for years now. They've been paying for supply for the you know for, uh, for diesel fuel. Uh, the cost of is it eighty four million dollars a year over the past few years. So uh, in a sense, this is continuation uh, would be much better one, much more you know reliable and less polluting and and better for everyone in everyone's interest. But I think it's also interesting to highlight the role that Qatar continues to play here. And Israel has very um, this security establishment has very strong uh, ties with Qatar, and they. You know, um, it's interesting because we don't talk about that so much. There's so much talk about the normalization. Here's a country uh, which has a normalized ties with Israel, uh, but in practice um, have important ties and great, great, great influence. Yeah. Uh, Qatar essentially bankrolls Gaza and has for for many years now uh, and tries to keep a lid on the situation there for for obviously the Gazans benefit but but also for Israel's benefit uh and and yeah the Qatari envoy uh comes to Israel he travels through Israel to get into Gaza uh that is commonplace and happens you know not every month but uh maybe every two months uh, i think he was just there recently uh again brokering more understandings and more uh more financial support um in in more with that transition, uh, so that might be like I said, maybe more pessimistic news or analysis about the news uh, to maybe more positive analysis of recent news regarding the Palestinians, uh, and that is a recent meeting between Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and a senior Palestinian official, uh, the Minister for Civilian Affairs Hussein Al Sheikh, uh, and that happened yesterday. On Monday and this morning, uh, Lapid also confirmed uh, in an interview that he had also met with uh, Palestinian intelligence chief Majid Faraj uh, recently. So uh, it's interesting that Lapid is now getting involved in the Palestinian Authority game, uh, which had been more of the province of uh, Benny Gantz as defense minister. So Lapid himself is now uh, at least if not taking the lead, then, then getting involved uh, on this file. I'm curious to get your takes. We'll start with uh, Shira. Uh, the strategic implications of this Lapid Hussein al-Sheikh meeting, uh, I don't think anything really tangible came out. I think Sheikh uh, just touted maybe a few hundred more uh, Palestinian IDs uh, for Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza that, that want to, uh, let's say, uh, make official their status in the territories. Uh, with obviously Israel's consent. Uh, so what did you make of, of the news that Lapid is now meeting with senior Palestinian officials? You know, I, I, I actually, I don't think it's such uh, big news. I think if you okay. look at the Palestinian political stage, right, it's uh, the president, Mahmoud Abbas, and his two confidants, the strongest people after him in the PA are Hussein al-Sheikh and uh, Majid Faraj. Uh, Hussein al-Sheikh, uh, especially, he's the, the Minister of uh, Coordination, you know, of c- c- Civilian Affairs, but everything that has to do with Israel goes through him. By the way, mm-hmm. everything that has to do go to do with America also goes with him, goes through, through him now. So he's quite the man, and he was also appointed to our vineyard. He's going to be confirmed for a senior PLO Executive Committee membership uh, role. So he's quite uh, up there. So I think it, um, it makes sense. Uh, for Lapid to meet 
to meet with him, especially as, you know, he talks about strengthening the PA and he has his, all his vision uh, for Gaza. Um, and part of his vision for Gaza is bringing the PA back to rule Gaza, uh, you know, de facto, not like they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with some political wrangling here, as you know, uh, living here, the Ministry of Defense, Benny Gantz, basically took over the Palestinian file. He's, uh, you know, he's uh, holding on to the meetings with Abbas, hosted him at his house in Rosh Ayn, um, met him several times. He's the one giving the goodies, the policies. And I think Gary Lapid says, wait, I'm the foreign minister. I'm the, f- the, the alternate prime minister, right? I'm the second prime minister here. I should be having these meetings also. Now, mm-hmm. I think meeting with Hussein Asher and Majid Faraj um, is less political. You know, it it it, it does give him um, a role and a say, and he's a relevant actor, but it's less uh, dangerous politically than meeting with Abu Mazen. Uh, for Lapid. For Lapid. Because Bennett would not meet with right with Abu Mazen. And stuff, right. You know, and a lot of the, the heat from uh, Israelis is on Abu Mazen. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with tension, uh, internal tension between the ministries in Israel. I don't know. What do you think, Neri? Well, uh, I was going to pose this question to Michael, but I'll just preface the question by saying that uh, in in his interview on Army Radio this morning, Lapid uh, was asked about his meeting with Hussein al-Sheikh, which was made public uh, by by the Palestinian side, actually, not by the Israeli side. Uh, and then the interviewer on Army Radio uh, said Lapid, asked Lapid, well, Benny Gantz uh, has met with Majid Faraj, to which Lapid uh, answered essentially, well, I've also met with Majid Faraj. <laughs> uh, so that that was just an interesting uh, little tidbit, uh, maybe to get into Lapid's, uh, Lapid's thinking. Uh, Michael, do you, do you rate this more as, let's say, domestic Israeli politics, or should we draw maybe further conclusions from from Lapid meeting with senior Palestinian officials, because obviously Lapid is supposed to be prime minister next year. There's obviously a, a domestic Israeli angle as, uh, you know, the, the positioning between Lapid and Gantz. And, you know, Lapid, um, Lapid has uh, has indicated that that he also sees no reason to meet with Abu Mazen. And, uh, and I think this is, as Shira pointed out, the two Palestinian officials who are closest to Abu Mazen, and so you know this is this is a way almost of meeting with Abu Mazen without meeting with Abu Mazen, and running afoul of um, Israeli domestic political winds. You know, I do think this maybe says says more about the Palestinian side than it does about the Israeli side. You know, Hussein al Sheikh is a guy who I don't know five years ago, six years ago, nobody nobody would have really noticed, um, and now not only is he about to go on to the PLO executive committee. You know, he's also rumored to being replaced, the replacement for Saeed Barakat uh, in terms of being a lead Palestinian negotiator. And uh, he certainly is the uh, the main interlocutor with the United States. And, you know, in that vein, him meeting with the Israeli foreign minister, uh, I think gives him, uh, gives him a boost in terms of Abbas's circle and uh, internal PLO politics. But, you know, I do wonder in the long term if this is a smart move for him, given Abu Mazen's deep unpopularity within, uh, with the Palestinian public at the moment, um, to the extent that 
Hussein al-Sheikh is seen as, as even more so uh, as being an Abbas lackey. Um, I don't know that that necessarily helps him long-term uh, within his own internal domestic political circles. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a tough dance. And it's frankly, it's the same one that Abu Mazen makes when he goes to Benny Gantz's house in, in Rosh Ha'in, um, and it makes him look as if he's, he's more involved and, and he has some influence, but, you know, many Palestinians look at it and, and kind of, uh, kind of scorn it. Um, the other thing I'll add is it, that it's not terribly surprising to me that Lapid would do this uh, when you when you consider a U.S. angle. You know, Lapid um, Lapid has a lot of influence within the White House and within the State Department. And given that uh, the United States is also dealing pretty closely with Hussein Hussein Sheikh, um, you know, it, this also may be an effort to um, position himself with the United States and with the Biden administration um, as someone on the Israeli side who, who wants to be helpful uh, and not someone who's going who's gonna to shun Abu Mazen and his circle just, just to shun them. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, the U.S. angle shouldn't be, shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, you know, Lapid, really for a few months after the government was formed last summer, uh, really kept his hands out of the Palestinian file. Uh, and that's begun to change, I think, in in recent weeks. Um, meetings with uh, with Majid Faraj and Hussein al-Sheikh. He put forward a his own plan for Gaza that Shira alluded to. Uh, so he's becoming a lot more a lot more active on that file. And yeah, I don't think we should <laughs> we should also overlook uh, the positive press that Gantz got a few weeks ago after he hosted uh, Mahmoud Abbas in his home. Uh, that made that made international headlines and uh, you know all for the good, but there's obviously also a political component to that as well. Putting it all together, I was struck by a recent interview, which you both may have seen, uh, by former IDF chief of staff Gadi Eisenkot in uh, in the Ma'ariv newspaper over the weekend to uh, Israeli journalist Ben Kaspit. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. I thought it was a remarkable interview, a uh, really long interview. Uh, apparently only the first half of, of this interview uh, was published on Friday. And it dealt with a whole bunch of things, but primarily uh, the Palestinian issue. Um, Eisenkot, remember, a former IDF chief of staff, uh, basically was quoted as saying that what the Palestinians call the idea of one state is gaining momentum and very broad sympathy uh, amongst Palestinians. Um, and then he asked rhetorically, is this what we want? Do we not see that this is what will happen in another 10 or 20 years? We're rolling the problem over to future generations. Uh, and then he went on to say that on the current course, Israel is heading to a one-state reality and the end, as he put it, of the Zionist dream. Uh, Eisenkot also said that you know the government should dismantle those illegal outposts that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Israel should strengthen the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Israel should implement Egypt's plan for for essentially an arrangement in Gaza with Hamas. And fundamentally, Eisenkot is calling for a real separation uh, from the Palestinians. So I thought it all very remarkable, especially coming from from someone like Eisenkot, uh, highly regarded, but also doesn't really give that many public pronouncements like this. Uh, Michael, what did you make of this interview with Eisenkot? So there are a few things that uh, struck me. First of all, um, 
you know, he seemed to fall squarely into the uh, <laughs> retired security establishment mold of saying that um, internal cohesion and, and you know, even to, a, to an extent, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the biggest issue facing Israel. And he, and he placed mm-hmm. it as a security, a security threat. You know, that was kind of the top line. Um, and, you know, as I said, that's, that's something that we have seen uh, in the past few years from uh from security establishment folks um almost every single security establishment official that retires says right. <laughs> the same thing uh, exactly um you know it certainly leaves you leaves you wondering why why they think they can't say it before they retire but you know i suppose that's that's a question maybe for for a whole for a whole uh, podcast of its own right um you know the other the other uh, few other things that struck me um, one was that he described the the 2015-16 period as sort of this this golden age um, of Israeli-Palestinian relations and, and stability, and you know I suppose compared to other periods that's true, but you know I, I do I do tend to I do tend to question that with a bit of skepticism the the notion that everything was sort of moving in the right direction in, in 2015, 16, and then it fell apart. Um, I'm not so sure about that. You know, there were, there, there were plenty of, plenty of incidents in the West Bank in, in 15 and 16 as well. There were plenty of indications that uh, Palestinians were discontented. Um, you know, it may have been quiet on a day-to-day basis, but this notion that, that somehow there's like a radical departure um, from then to now, I'm I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure I, I quite buy it. Um, the other thing that uh, that I appreciated was that throughout the interview, Eisenkot kept on talking about how things have to change, and, and at one point, Kaspit says, "You know, you keep on talking about how things have to change, and and there needs to be a plan, but you haven't yet said what that plan should be." Um, you know, at which point Eisenkot started to talk a little bit more about uh, about separation and outposts and you know the the importance of, of of blocks and and the Jordan Valley versus versus other spots. So uh, I appreciated the effort to nail him down, and you know he seemed to give a few more specifics after Cosby did that. Um, but you know, all in all, he he didn't he didn't mince words. It was it was certainly uh, at least you know the way it came off in print. Uh, it was certainly a very forceful interview. Yeah, and I would add that it was to my to my ear is a very center left Israeli interview. That there's no there's no ifs ands or buts that he's he's very critical of uh, not just the right wing agenda here but also he said very specifically about certain Israeli right wing politicians uh, including Naftali Bennett and others so I was struck by how uh, how forthright he was in terms of uh, the political aspects to what he was saying uh, Shira did you see it the same way. Um, I, you know, it's hard for me to say center left because now, if this is left, right, what what have we become? Um, but uh, but I gotta say, I mean, first of all, full full dis- disclosure, uh, Gary Eisenkot sits um, next to me in my you know visiting office at INSS, um, and I am a huge the fan. Tel Aviv's think tank. Yeah, and I'm I'm and I'm a huge fan. I'm just a huge fan of this person, and I can say now because he's not yet in politics. So right, I'm not promoting anyone, but he is. 
you know, the biggest mensch, he is so smart, but also so humble and so down to earth in ways that I, I've never seen an Israeli general. And he was the top general uh, behaving mm-hmm. this way. He's remarkable. So the fact that he doesn't mince words and he, that he's candid is just his personality. Um, I... I agree with you. He was critical on, you know, of Bennett on one thing. He gave credit to Benjamin Netanyahu when credit was due. Uh, he mm-hmm. was talking about the strategic decisions he had to handle. And I got to say, I think even when he was wearing uniform, he sounded the alarm uh, more than others. And he was the first one to, to dare. I don't know if you, know if you remember in 2015, after signing the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran, he was the one saying that the agreement um, provides opportunities. Israel. And of course, then Netanyahu, I mean, <laughs> he got nailed for it, for saying this, for daring mm-hmm. to say. So he, I mean, relatively for someone who was in uniform, I I think he, you know, sort of like spoke uh, truth to power uh, back then. Um, and, and I thought it was a great interview. Um It's hard when he goes into, you know, trying to say specific plans and he had to be sort of sensitive to things, but I think he did, he did, he did, you know, um, he did provide, you know, he did speak what, what Michael just said about, you know, the separation um, and um, sounding the alarm on the deterioration to a one state, uh, not reality, even a one state, you know, just situation without having an alternative. So, you know, I appreciate it very much and I, you know, look forward to reading the second part. I don't know what's, what's left to say. Maybe, maybe maybe (laughs) he will, he will declare his intent to, to, you know, join politics. I think the second part deals with uh, Iran and Hezbollah, which if anything may may be even more interesting uh, given, given what's happening in, uh, in Vienna at the moment with the nuclear talks. Uh, But was your assessment, and this is an open question to you both, was your assessment really like like Shira alluded to, that this was a, let's say, uh, uh, an interview ahead of him joining the political fray? And if he does, what would, what would that look like, do you think? Michael? It certainly seemed like it to me. Um, he didn't sound like someone who intends to remain uh, <laughs> sitting next to Shira at INSS forever. Um, it, it, why, why not, you know, not to, not to badmouth, you know, sitting next to Shira at INSS. No, 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 not at all. I, you know, guys. So he's, he's, he's very, very, very lucky that, that I've got the asymptote that he gets to sit next to Shira at INSS. So, but, uh, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe not the type of interview you give if, if that's your, uh, if that's your intention for the next 10 years. Um, it seems to me like he's going to, like he's going to, jump in based on that um, and definitely doesn't seem like someone who wants to, you know, just, just effectively be, be a sideline reporter. Um, as to what impact that would have, you know, I would have answered this question very, very differently five years ago than, than I would today. I think um, you've had this parade of high profile former chiefs of staff uh, enter politics, and uh, a bunch of them have have completely uh, flamed out. Um, I think almost all of them seem to have found their experience frustrating. Um, and the days in which you know you're a former Ramakal and you enter politics, and and people are kind of wowed by it, I, I think those days are gone. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's hard for me to think that Gadi Eisenkot could form his own party and, you know, all of a sudden um, end up in the, in the Knesset controlling 
15 or, or 20 seats. And if he joins one of the existing parties, you know, the, the, the polling, the polling probably moves a few seats here or there. Um, but I, I don't see him coming in and, and upending the entire system by any means. Okay. Shira, what's your take? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, I don't know, but I agree with Michael. Uh, he didn't give such an interview until now. Um, and so the reason that I could, you know, see is him. Uh, I don't know. The door was always open to joining politics, but now it seems like the door is open uh, even more. Uh, you know, if I assuming where he was before that would be with Lapid. Uh, but it's it's interesting, right? Because there is a government and it's supposed to be a transition in the government. We have two prime ministers. You know who the Minister of Defense is going to stay under the... I mean, unless there's, unless there's elections and, and then we're starting anew again. But don't I, I don't see this happening. We'll, we'll, get to, we'll, get to that, we'll get to that in a second. Right. But I think, you know, possibly, you know, Lapid can bring him in as national security advisor, which would make sense that he would change. But but I I, I don't know. But what does what does it do? I will tell you that an Israeli citizen living here, it would be terrific to have him, um, you know, as a decision maker again because he's just he's really he's really great. I mean, I have nothing bad to say about him. He's just like he's great. Um, but uh, would that change the political scene? I, I, I don't see it happening. And, and by the way, you know, he also has the potential, whether he'd be a good policymaker or not, and, and you know, I, I think he probably would be, um, he also has the potential to be relatively polarizing um, just on the issue of Elor Azaria, which he spoke about in his interview. You know, I think that for, for a lot of Israelis on the right, um, it's it's probably easy to turn him into a lightning rod uh, in a way that um, that you maybe wouldn't even be able to do with with other former chiefs of staff. Yeah, uh, Elo Azaria, we should remind our, our listeners, was uh, the Israeli soldier in the West Bank city of Hebron who, uh, about ten or fifteen minutes after a terror attack, uh, shot dead an already neutralized and dying uh, Palestinian assailant, and he was uh, court-martialed for that, and I think he. He did go to prison, uh, but he became this kind of cause celebre of the Israeli right, and uh, Eisenkot was chief of staff at the time and uh, caught a lot of flack for essentially upholding the rules of warfare that the IDF adheres to. So, uh, yeah, I agree that you know he could be a lightning rod for the right. Uh, it was also interesting, I think, coming out of this interview, it was very clear that he's uh, not of the right, that if there were rumors in years past that maybe he could join maybe a center-right party. Uh, I don't think that's that's at all happening, uh, given the positions he laid out in the interview over the weekend. Uh, and as Shira said, I think you know his natural place would be uh, with Yair Lapid in the Ashatid party, uh, given the policies that he was that he was putting forward. Which, uh, to my mind, uh, really no daylight uh, between what Lapid uh, has advocated for uh, and believes in. So it would be interesting to see him. Uh, a join the political fray and b what what that would look like, uh, but I do disagree slightly. I think Eisenkot, because of who he is and what he represents, really this uh, salt of the earth Israeli, a former uh, Golani Brigade soldier, uh, viewed as uh, viewed as maybe uh, a bit closer to the average Israeli than than maybe other uh, previous uh, IDF officers. I think he could he could move the needle. 
and he would bolster uh, Lapid's security credentials uh, in the Eshatid party. So I, you know, I could see that being, if not a, a major difference maker, then then something that uh, that could sway, you know, a tight election uh, in future. Uh, but that remains to be seen. We're we're already planning uh, Gadi Eisenkot's future, which uh, <laughs> which I think he also has to decide upon. I think that would only only be fair. Uh, but in terms of Israeli political futures, uh, final topic for for this episode has to be obviously uh, Bibi Netanyahu and what was viewed at least last week as a as a looming plea deal uh, over his corruption trial. Uh, last night, Monday night, Bibi finally broke his silence after a week and a half of of uh, media reports, speculations, and also real negotiations between his lawyers and the attorney general. And Bibi came out last night on social media, a pre-recorded uh, statement, and he claimed he, you know, never agreed to this uh, calon, this moral turpitude clause, uh, i.e., you know, that would see him leaving politics. And he vowed that he would continue to lead the Likud and the nationalist camp. Uh, but what he didn't say is that there was no plea deal negotiations at all. Um, he didn't say that. And people asked the question, okay, he's going to remain Likud leader and the leader of the nationalist camp. Uh, but for how long? For how long? Uh, and it seems that the looming plea deal will have to wait uh, for the current attorney general's term to expire at the end of the month and then a, a replacement to be appointed. Uh, that could take a couple of months. So I think everything is on hold until then. Uh, so I think maybe a reprieve, right, for the Bennett-Lapid coalition, uh, a reprieve, let's say, in the impending civil war inside the Likud to see who succeeds BB. Um, but I know Michael has a strong take on it. If anybody has read Michael's column last week, the Coplo column that's put out every week by Israel Policy Forum, you were perhaps a bit more optimistic regarding the Bennett Lapid's coalition staying power, even if Netanyahu would have exited the stage, right? Right. And you know, as you as you point out, it looks like he's going to be around for a while longer. Although a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> although although notable that um there was no kind of um, red meat to the masses in his in his video message. Nothing about a judicial coup. Nothing about uh, you know nothing about um, the the state conspiring to bring him down. Um, so you know maybe 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 that the the, the negotiations actually are, uh, are are still going on. Who knows? Um, and we also you know now have this example uh, from. I think actually, literally, literally today, uh, of Arya Derry stepping down from the Knesset but remaining uh, the chairman of Shas. So yeah. you know, maybe maybe Netanyahu will, will go down that path as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, as 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 I wrote last week, even if Netanyahu goes, I, I do think that there are a lot of really high barriers that have to be overcome for Likud and and the Haredim and. Itamar Ben Gvir and company to to bring down this government, um, you know, and and I think that the longer this government continues and overcomes various challenges, uh, the more tight the logic becomes of them sticking together, um, and you know, in some ways that's actually the I think the danger for the current opposition of this playing out for so long, because the longer this plays out, I think that. The, the less important Netanyahu himself becomes 
in terms of being the one thing that's keeping this coalition together. Uh, I think that as more time goes by, he becomes less and less important to its staying power. Um, but I, but I, but I know Nery that you that you disagree. <laughs> I I disagree slightly. I'm I'm perhaps uh, a bit more pessimistic uh, about the staying power of the current government if Netanyahu actually takes a plea deal and, and exits the stage and is forced to retire from politics. Um, you know, we don't need to unpack the various permutations that I've played out in my mind a million times over the past uh, week or two. Uh, that that remains to be seen, and and will likely take a few more months to to play out, given uh, that we need to wait most likely for a new attorney general. Um, Shira, final question to you on this topic, right? So, if the the threat, let's say, of the, to the current Israeli government has has passed for now, and Netanyahu uh, vowed to stay Likud leader, vowed to stay in politics. Um, by the way, I don't think that was just for let's say. Outside consumption, I think that was also geared towards the Likud itself uh, to kind of quell the, the the various challengers already measuring the drapes in the Likud chairman office uh, in the day after after Netanyahu. Um, but do you view this as, as really a vote of confidence, uh, political confidence in the current government, Shira? Um, that, okay, they took power, let's say, what, seven, eight months ago, last summer, um, and they have various plans, let's say you know, in the West Bank, in Gaza, over the Iran nuclear deal, and then obviously domestic issues. Um, do you also view it as as them kind of continuing business as usual? There are a lot of challenges, right? There's COVID uh, raging again, um, and, you know, and economic issues, and of course, the challenges, uh, the Iran nuclear deal and in, in, in the region, and, you know, there was this strike on uh, Abu Dhabi earlier, uh, a few days ago, uh, and Ukraine could be invaded or not. Uh, we don't know. Anyway, there are so many things that I think uh, this coalition is busy. Um, I mm. will tell you, and and I don't know, I, I don't want to gamble on this, but, you know, even if Netanyahu departs the scene, it's quite a gamble for some of these coalition partners who are now cabinet ministers, right? Uh, to mm. go for elections. What are they selling? What are they selling? And they're risking going to the opposition. I understand that they're all eyeing the Likud. Um, and this is where there could be a difference in the way they you know, conduct themselves. It goes to the first part of this podcast recording when we were talking about settler violence, right? You have to angle um, for that base that you're 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 hoping uh, to to get to um, soon, sooner or later, and on anything that has to do with the Palestinian file. So it makes sense that we will see Bennett continuing not to meet with Abu Mazen. We'll continue hearing Shaked saying what she's saying, and and um, and uh, Gidon Saar, uh, you know espousing the same positions as they have. Uh, but other than that, I don't think it affects a lot of how they run things internally. Um, there's a strong anti-vaxxer campaign here, like there is in the U.S. Um, and this is also, you know, political, but, you know, interestingly, right, it's political more coming from, you know, it's a coalition, kind of like the government coalition of the right and the left. Uh, it's not clear who's leading this one. Um so there could be implications, but I don't see, I don't think the effects are going to be felt uh, that soon. Okay. Uh, a vote of confidence in the current Israeli government. Uh, and yeah, I'm not going to get into my 
rather more pessimistic take until uh, a plea deal is is actually negotiated and signed, and then uh, we can we can all get back here and talk about uh, the various permutations of the various actors and potential elections or alternative governments. Uh, Michael, any last thoughts about Bibi Netanyahu and his plea deal? Um, no, just that um, the 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 more interesting action. Uh, this week, actually, I think within Likud wasn't Netanyahu. It was, you know, all of the machinations that then take place at the next level and, you know, people piling on Yisrael Katz for, you know, allegedly beginning to ne- try to negotiate with uh, with Tikva Hadasha and Yamina before before Bibi is gone, you know, and, and uh, Miri Regev, you know, piling on him for that and Nir Barkat effectively saying, you know, no comment, I don't want to, I'm not, not going to talk about this issue anymore. Um, it really is amazing how even with Netanyahu perhaps negotiating his exit from politics and, and canceling Knesset faction meetings, um, you know, because he's clearly involved in these negotiations all the time. Still, the idea that any of the other Likud members can, you know, talk about it, allude to it, you know, prepare in any way. Um, you know, that, that this is this is the height of controversy just really demonstrates the stranglehold he still has. Um, and, you know, I know the, the, the U.S.-Israel comparisons oftentimes are trite, but you just, you can't look at this and, and not make the comparisons to what takes place here uh, within the Republican Party with regard to Donald Trump, where there are clearly people who want him to go, but everybody's afraid to say it until he's actually gone. Right. And until he makes a decision to leave right. or cuts a deal and is forced out. Uh, Michael Shira. Thank you both so much for for going around the horn and breaking down a whole bunch of various pertinent issues happening this week in Israel. Uh, take care and thank you. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. All right. That was Shira Efron and Michael Coplo. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank Jacob Gilman, who produces the podcast, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be safe out there. Thanks for listening.